Ian, look at me. Uh, yeah, what's up, Matt? I'm the captain now. Hello and welcome to the Dice Pirates. Uh, I am your captain, Matt. That's right, captain. We had a fire. It was, uh, you know, six out of ten insurance investigators determined it to be accidental. And therefore, we had a huge payout. I've bought a brand new boat. And so we're coming to you live from the SS Reiner Knizia, sailing the seas of board games. And I'm joined today by my fourth mate, Ian. Ian, how you doing, buddy? I can't deny I'm a little bit upset. This is completely unfair. I've been relegated for no reason whatsoever. I was nothing if not a perfect captain to you and an amazing commander, and this is absolutely ridiculous. Look, man, I tried to get you in on this scheme, and by scheme, I mean completely accidental event that was completely unforeseen and, frankly, unpreventable, but you didn't want to have anything to do with it, so I got the cash, I bought the boat, and uh, now we're sailing around. I do think that the uh, masthead figurine of Reiner Knizia is uh, actually too lifelike. It's creepy. Its eyes are following me. Look, all I'm saying is that you might want to watch your back. Is that a threat, sir? I'll have you in irons. Aaron, down here. Onto the deck. Uh, that's right. We're joined today by uh, our special guest, our able crewman, our sometimes uh, venturer, Aaron. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm happy I was able to uh, sneak out of the brig that you guys have had me locked in the past few months during that, that totally accidental fire. That's actually your cabin. It's it's very brig-like. Uh, we're so we're working on some upgrades, but that's actually your cabin. Oh, and I guess we just need a fix to the locks on the inside instead of the outside. Oh, that's a good detail. Our Yelp reviews have been terrible from the guests, by the way. Airbnb has not been working out for us. That's right. In all serious, though, uh, before we go ahead and get to our actual soapbox, I do want to make a quick statement for everybody out there. Um, if you download the episode early last episode then you may have noticed that there were some audio issues and the quality of the sound was just not up to what we try to hold ourselves to i want to apologize for that and just let you guys know that we we do care about that we are going to be extending our giveaway to next episode as well if you head over to itunes go ahead and leave us a review on apple podcasts we will go ahead and select a random user and go ahead and give away a free copy of bluff and ears to somebody so Go ahead and do that. We apologize for any of the issues, and we will definitely commit to doing better next time. I mean, we are truly amateur podcasters. It's a miracle this thing even gets out every other week. So, uh, But we're grateful and appreciative of everyone that's listening and being patient with us as we learn how to do this thing together, and we hope that you're enjoying it. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to extend that contest and give everybody a chance to uh, get in on the giveaway. But all you got to do is please rate us and review us. The Apple algorithm will never love us until we have a certain number of reviews. So please, you'll be doing us a solid and we'll send you a cool pirate game from us, your cool pirate friends. It's true. Now we're going to move on and we're going to go ahead and let Aaron step up on this soapbox first. Aaron, is there anything that you really want to talk about? So I know you guys don't uh, spend a lot of time on Kickstarter, but Recently, there's been a, a, a super popular campaign that's really just kind of getting under my skin. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell people how to spend their money. You know, you got them, them stimmy bucks coming in. You want to burn it as fast as you can. I get that. I'm with you. But the Kickstarter campaign that has really kind of caught my ire here lately is for Stellaris. The game's being 
published by Academy Games, who've had some mostly successes, but a couple stumbles uh, in their, their Kickstarters recently. I just, I don't know how so many people are sinking so much money into this game that, as far as I can tell, doesn't exist yet. I mean, red flag number one, there's no rule book. There's, there's no rule book. There's none. And they have like, and it's not like nobody asked for it. It's come up several times. They've done a couple uh, live streams and, and, and chats. They did a, a stream on tabletop simulator, which uh, the first, I don't know if you guys have watched it, but the first like 20 minutes or so was just everyone learning how to use tabletop simulator, which was fun to do that in a live environment. And anytime the rulebook got brought up, it was kind of deferred. And the, the most solid answer that anyone got was the artwork isn't final yet, which is just a real non-answer. Um, you know, like I said, they've, they've done a couple streams, but they haven't really sat down and showed this is the game from one end to the other. It's always been, here's this specific chunk of the game. You know, they had one YouTube review up that was just... They didn't have a copy of the game. They had never played the game. They were just talking about how cool they thought the idea of the game was. Which, like, I can do that for free. They wouldn't have had to pay me anything. I could have talked about the ideas that they have. And if they really deliver on this, you know, campaign, legacy-style 4X game that you can play with six people in two hours, that would be mind-blowing amazing. But... $150 is a really big ask for something that I don't know they've even physically prototyped yet. Like any pictures of the game itself have just been 3D renders or stuff from Tabletop Sim. And it just, it's, it's kind of blowing my mind how much money it's, I mean, I understand it's licensed off a very popular PC game, but the fact that there is so much, so much nothing holding up this campaign. I just, I really don't understand why it's doing as well as it is. I have been really fascinated watching this, and it's pointing to something that I've been concerned is going to happen at some point, and I don't know if this is going to be it, but I feel like we're due for a major Kickstarter failure in the board game industry that's going to cause everybody to question, what are we doing? I, I think we could probably do a whole episode on this topic, and we probably should. The relationship between Kickstarters and board games has been uh, a bubble that is threatening to burst for a long time. It's been a wonderful relationship in some respects because a lot of dope games are getting made because Kickstarter makes it possible. You know, uh, a designer can present an idea. If it looks solid, you can back it, and then games can become a reality that might not otherwise have made it out of the traditional publishing structure so in a way kickstarter has been a great equalizer that has brought boutique publishers and creative designers to the table but the fomo thing the fear of missing out and the hype around kickstarter is starting to get so intense in the game community that mass numbers of people are backing games that like you said seem to barely exist they're just kind of suggestions of a game and i am seriously worried that a major highly invested game is just going to completely fail. Either not hit the market one day or, or hit the market in such a terrible state that it leads to calls for refunds and a major scandal that could potentially shake this whole thing to its core. And the Stellaris situation is 
a really fascinating situation where a ton of money, like you said, is pouring in for a game that is in barely above prototype stage at this phase. The, the only saving grace, the only reason that this might skate by and be successful is the fact that at least Academy Games is a publisher with a track record. They've delivered games. They have not always been 100% successful with everything that they've done, but they've delivered playable, in fact, in some cases, really well-respected games. This does seem a little out of their wheelhouse. They're more well-known for their historical games, games with a kind of almost educational quality to them. Uh, so this is a thematic and gameplay kind of stretch for them, which does make me nervous, but they're an established publisher. If this were a first-time publisher or somebody with a less stellar track record, this could be a recipe for disaster. But there's other strange things happening on Kickstarter, like... Uh, you know, Gambling Games latest brought in over $2 million for a very nice looking but pretty B-flat dungeon crawler, right? I mean, like, just, I don't know. We're in a weird place right now with Kickstarter and board games. Kickstarter has always been a bit of a minefield when you really get into it. And I think, like you said, we're going to see that bubble burst. It's It looks very similar to where a lot of video games were on Kickstarter early in the cycle. And you, you don't see as many video games on Kickstarter for this exact reason, where there'll be a great idea and it will get posted and it will get a lot of money and then it will never materialize because people were unable to follow through. They were unsure of what was going on. And obviously board games have worked a lot better. It's easier to actually create something and then show it and actually have something physical to provide. So there's a lot of reasons I think board games have worked better. But you can see a lot of the similarities, and I think you're right. Like It is very important to be looking at those red flags, and it, it is very concerning to see so much money get thrown at this. Yeah, I don't want to spend all episode on this, but I just want to like, I do want to say one thing that's on my mind, since this is the soapbox. You know, outside of a uh, podcast world, in my real life, I do work, I work in like marketing, communication stuff. So getting people to like act and do something with a communication strategy is a part of what I do. And the Kickstarter model is all about creating pressure and making you feel compelled to act. It, these whole This whole thing of like scale. I mean, that's, uh, that's Simon's whole business model. Yeah. Is if you, yeah, you can buy it in the store later, but if you buy it now before anything is out for it, you get an extra two and a half pounds of plastic and all this other, all these other little greeblies that you don't get if you buy it later. Yeah, this whole thing of like scaled level ups and unlock as you go along. I mean, they've gamified. They know that we like to play games and they figured out how to gamify fundraising to make us feel like we're leveling up and unlocking new achievements. And uh, I guess my word of advice as consumers is uh, be cautious. You know, if it's a project that you believe in and you have confidence in, then back it. You know, uh, every Kickstarter is a level of assumed risk, but the more established the publisher, the less of that risk. Uh, but if you don't know anything about this publisher or you don't have confidence in it, just wait. I promise you almost any game that does well on Kickstarter is going to find its way into a retail space and you'll be able to get it for cheap and you'll be able to play this game. FOMO, don't let FOMO overtake you and uh, don't let marketing hype and uh, uh, you know action language just designed to like compel you to act. Don't let any of that marketing stuff like suck you in. Just you know, be, be calm, keep your head about you. And uh, you don't have to get sucked into these things. But uh, I'm not saying Stellaris is going to fail, but it is it is a worrying uh, you know thing when something that is in such a early state is raising so much money. Definitely something to keep a wary eye on for sure. Um, Matt, what do you have for us today? All right, man. I got two things for the soapbox that I wanted to uh, 
explore, and I'll keep it brief. So the first thing I want to talk about is On Mars, the uh, new game from uh, designer Vital Lasardo. This is the hot new heavy Euro game that uh, a lot of people are digging right now, and we've gotten a chance to play it a couple of times. And I've just got some early impressions of it. One, this is probably the heaviest game that I think I've ever played in my years of play of board games. We don't play a lot of heavy games. I I personally tend toward the thematic and dice chunkier. And when we do play Euros, they're usually lighter and a little bit more easier to grasp. This is the kind of big, chunky, complicated Euro game that some people just like really, really love. And so we've been pushing ourselves to get into some beefier games. If you've never played it, it's basically uh, uh, another in the uh, what seems to be endless line of uh, colonizing Mars board games that we're putting out here in the last few years. And you are trying to build a little uh, little establishment there on Mars with a huge assortment of cool wooden meeples, uh, robots and spacemen and uh, little rovers that you can rove about the planet. The things that make it unique are the way the game plays out into in these two distinct zones. You take actions while in orbit, and then you can opt when the shuttle is in the right position to fly down to the planet and take a whole other different set of actions on the planet's surface. The key is that you can't move at will uh, between uh, the planet and orbit. The shuttle is kind of moving on a on a path, on a track, and at certain intervals it takes back off again. And so you can you have to be uh, ready to move up when uh, it's time or you'll be stuck down on the planet maybe for a couple more turns. It was wild the first time I played it, thinking of the game as almost two distinct games because there's two totally different sets of actions in each zone and making the decision about where to put your workers and how to use them because if you place a worker in an orbit zone and then fly back down to the planet to do some work, that worker in orbit is locked in there until you come back again to get him. And so that totally changes the idea of how like worker placement works. The game was remarkably confusing to me the first time I played it. Could not fathom it. And then I finally made a connection in my mind that it was a little bit like viticulture in a way. The way that the seasons in viticulture work, there's a spring and a fall. But instead of moving, uh, you know, instead of the game forcing you to move on each round from spring to fall, you can opt. It's it's as if in viticulture you could opt in to go into the fall. (laughs) And then your workers that you placed in the fall got stuck there when you came back to the spring. So it's a little bit like that, that kind of two distinct phases. But it is a gorgeous, complex, intense game of space exploration. The final things I want to say about it, it has beautiful design. I love the board. I love how it looks futuristic, but is very readable. I love the meeples. The me- this has the best wooden meeples, I think, of any game I've played recently. Just incredibly designed rocket ships and robots, and everything is screen printed in a way that that's not quite, like, it's not cheesy the way some screen printed meeples are. And even though it's super complex, it teaches itself to you over a couple of sessions. Uh, The first game scored about 42, 43 points. The second time I played it, doubled that, more than doubled that, scored almost 90 points. Uh, In fact, would have scored over 90 if I hadn't made like one mental error. So clearly it's a game that does teach itself to you and you get better at. So if you're looking for a really heavy game, but one that is thematic, I really think after a couple of plays, I'd really feel comfortable recommending on mars to anybody that's wanting to step up into that more like complex uh gaming space ian i know you played a one one round with us uh, what do you think about it i really enjoyed the game it was like you said an incredibly crunchy super complex experience and one of those games that really gets better over time some games you can figure out very quickly some games 
really explain their mechanics very simply, and you, you can learn how to play over the course of the game. This game is definitely one of those that is a more hardcore board gaming experience, but it really it constantly gets better. The more you play it, I'm excited to play it again. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think this is one we're going to get to the table again soon. I think it's just uh, it's just really good. Brilliant design. All right, well, so while I'm up on the soapbox, I wanted to touch briefly on something that's kind of a follow-up to last week. If you listen to our show, we spent a good chunk of time breaking down uh, the controversy that erupted over on Board Game Geek over the depiction of the female characters on the cover of Tiny Epic Dungeons. Uh, this all originated when designer Elizabeth Hargrave made a, a post sort of questioning why some of these female characters were in such typical male gaze pose and attire. And uh, that's, that sparked some heated and passionate discussion, and we kind of weighed into that. There's a similar, uh, another discussion uh, breaking out uh, this week over the game, Paleo. Paleo is the hot sort of thematic deck-building game about Neolithic times. Actually, I don't know if it's a deck-builder. definitely has a lot of cards. But it's a game of uh, Neolithic cave folk that's currently really, really popular. But as the ever-clever uh, and erudite reviewers over at uh, Shut Up and Sit Down pointed out, all of the characters on all the cards in this game of Neolithic times are depicted as being white. They are Caucasian in uh, skin tone. And that's a really glaring oversight in a time when this issue of representation in gaming is so preeminent. And so the Board Game Geek forums have once again been breaking down this issue of representation, of people questioning you know, how this came to be, other people saying, why does it matter? The game is representing uh, an obviously fictional version of Paleolithic times, so why does it even matter uh, what the skin tone is? I don't want to completely rehash and revisit everything I shared last week. I think if you listened, you know that we care a lot about this issue. We think representation is important. What it made me uh, realize is I think a simple rule of thumb that a lot of publishers ought to incorporate a lot of designers ought to incorporate into their design process is look at the art and ask yourself the question is everyone that might potentially play this game going to have a chance to see themselves in this game i think that's a real simple question is is any potential player going to have a chance to see themselves in the game man woman various ethnicities if the answer is no if you if you look around at the world you've created and you say well this doesn't probably this doesn't represent the plurality of the gamers who might be playing it then you probably need to reconsider uh unless you have a really strong compelling reason to narrow uh thematically the representation of people in your game uh i think in this world in, in this day and age you've just got to make more of an effort these uh these controversies are pretty easy to avoid if you just have a little more thought on the design end. But just to kind of finish out, I do think the fact that these discussions keep happening is really, really, really good. I think it means that the demographic of the gaming audience is changing. I think our awareness is changing. And that's a good thing. And it's going to force changes in the way games are made. And I think all of that is really good and really healthy. So we're going to go ahead and move on to our main discussion now. We're going to be talking about Fantasy Flight games. We're going to dive in deep on that. So we're going to go to a quick break and come back with that. All right, and welcome back to the Dice Pirates. We're going to dive into our main topic for today's episode, which is going to be uh, a simple question. What the heck happened to Fantasy Flight Games? I want to set this discussion up with a couple of things. One is a mild disclaimer. This isn't, uh, we're not trying to say that Fantasy Flight Games has collapsed or is in danger of, uh, 
shutting down or anything. It would probably be a bit hyperbolic to try to say that when you're talking about a company that's still one of the largest uh, publishers of games or publishing arms of Asmodee, as the case may be, but still one of the largest presence in board games that currently has, uh, I think, three games on the hotness list right now and many of the greatest games of all time. So I don't want to be overly hyperbolic in how we describe what's going on with good old FFG. But if you've been playing games for a long time, you've probably noticed that something has happened to Fantasy Flight games. Their overall kind of prestige and esteem amongst gamers seems to have uh, diminished quite a bit in the last few years due to a variety of factors. They've had, in my opinion, they've seemed to be putting out fewer consistently like critically uh, acclaimed games. They've had some noticeable missteps that seemed uh, unusual for them from a few years ago. Games like Discover, Lands Unknown that were a real flop. They've had games that dropped and got no real support, even though they seem to have been pretty popular, like uh, Star Wars uh, Outer Rim, which has been languishing without an update for a long time, although I think one may be finally coming. But uh, more than anything, the game, their culture, their kind of approach to how they make and promote games has changed a lot. And I think this is worth discussing because it points to how the game industry is changing. It points to corporatization and uh, a lot of factors that are influencing the way games get made and what games that we as players actually get to enjoy. And so I thought we'd break it down. I want to open this up by inviting Aaron to kind of weigh in. I think of all of us, Aaron's probably been playing like serious hobby board games longer and probably has the most kind of uh, perspective on it. So I want to kick it over to you. How would you describe like Fantasy Flight Games position uh, in the board game pantheon uh, over the years and kind of what have they meant to gamers? I mean, Fantasy Flight Games, there was a time they were like, I don't want to say they were like the absolute number one can't miss, but they routinely were putting out solid hit after hit after hit. I mean, the fact that the first game they ever published was Twilight Imperium, which is currently on its fourth edition, which is just wild from a publishing idea that like the game has grown that much. And I mean, TI4 is uh, the last time I checked sitting at number five on the top board games of all time on Board Game Geek. So like the fact that that's where they started is really kind of telling that like they you know the the first thing they ever did was this thick meaty 4x invite your friends over and tell them that they're not going home until it's dark outside we are going to sit down around this table for the rest of the day and play this one game you know and like that's it's 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 a almost audacious that that was the first game they ever put out you know that they didn't start with with uh, you know something, something that you'd see at Target for twenty bucks in the party game aisle, which is where a lot of companies get started because there's a lot of money to be made in twenty dollar light games. Um, and then you know from there they were one of the first, if not the first. It's kind of hard to track down this specific information, but they were one of the first companies to really do licensed titles. And so many of them were actually really good. Companies have have tried and failed to do, even within the the universes that FFG was working in of of Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, they've put out games that everyone was just like, oh, that's kind of 
the hot trash garbage uh, and the fact that Fantasy Flight, and granted, not every game was was knocking it out of the park, but they were consistently at least pretty good. And for a company that's been around as long as they have and that has put out the volume of games that they have, a a you know lifetime average of pretty good is honestly really impressive. So, you know, my experience with Fantasy Flight Games, just to kind of set this up a little more, is that they're the the first kind of publisher of major, like, hobby games that I discovered. Uh, as I know I've mentioned on the podcast before, my kind of origin story into board gaming, modern board gaming, uh, my radioactive spider that bit me was Roombound, uh, third edition, uh, from Fantasy Flight Games. And uh, that just immediately hooked me with its potential for storytelling and adventure and thematic craziness. And from there, I picked up other titles from them uh, over the years. Uh, Elder Sign, uh, the Warhammer Quest adventure card game, Heroes of Tiranoth, and and, uh, later we got heavy into the Descent dungeon crawl. And at the peak of their power, I don't really think anybody embodied the ethos of like the Ameritrash or Amerithrash tradition better than a Fantasy Flight games. They put out big box games that were going to tell a story, that were going to be highly thematic, that were going to be full of really good components, miniatures, cards with great art and flavor text. And these games weren't always perfect. Some of them could be unbalanced or a little wonky or uh, rules heavy, but these were games that put you in a place and created a sense of narrative excitement and adventure better than almost anything that any publisher was putting out. We're talking about fantasy. We're talking about horror with their long line of Arkham files games like Eldritch Horror and Arkham Horror. But the other really unique thing about uh, Fantasy Flight games, kind of at their peak, and when I say their peak, I think we all sort of mean like sort of their pre-purchase by Asmodee. Uh, at their peak, they also were a company that showed a deep love for the history of games because they, were, they had a long library of smaller and probably less profitable titles that they kept in print that were really about celebrating the legacy of games. Games like Cosmic Encounter, which was an early uh, game uh, in the history of board gaming that they preserved and brought back in a great modern edition. They published a lot of uh, Reiner Knizia Euro classics in a line of prestige formats. They took a lot of risks. They put out. They were. They were really a, a company that was clearly run by gamers and for gamers, and that means that it probably was sloppy and not always the best. But in their modern form under Asmodee, they've been pared back. They've had a, a large number of layoffs. Their catalog has been almost entirely trimmed of its excesses. So some of these niche titles that they published are no longer available. And they've made big sweeping changes to some of their major lines. The uh, the world that uh, the world of Descent and Roombound, the Tiernoth series of games, has most notably suffered. And the fantasy fight that we're left today is uh, probably more profitable by you know for for Asmodee, but has lost a lot of its flavor and a lot of its heart. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of dig into that. That's a long kind of preamble. That's kind of the thesis and the uh, ending all in one. Uh, but to get into it a little more, I want to kind of punt over to you, Ian. I know you spent some time kind of digging into the, the history. Tell us a little bit about uh, Fantasy Flight's kind of arc and, and why they've, they've been such a big deal. Absolutely. So like you mentioned, Fantasy Flight kind of stands head, head and shoulders above a lot of other board game publishers just because of you know, when they were around and the fact that they continue to put out incredibly popular, massive games during a time when Euro games were really kind of the, the major game in town. 
Twilight Imperium was released in 1997. So the company has wow. been around for 24 years at this point. That's a long record for that's wild. any company, really. And that, that's a long time. And their first game was Twilight Imperium, and it was incredibly popular. And really cemented them kind of in this place. It was originally created by Christian Peterson, and he remained the CEO until very recently. And he really kind of embodied the spirit of the company. And I do want to talk about him later. But... But like you said, Fantasy Flight really focused on a lot of games that really kind of embodied the nature of, you know, the small hobby board games. They had a lot of classics. I mean, you talk about, you know, the Descent games, Runebound, games like Elder Sign, a lot of games that might not get made nowadays or games that would be made from smaller publishers. And they were putting those out. They were supporting them. They have a history of putting out multiple expansions, sometimes maybe because the game was a little bit broken on release. They had issues with playtesting sometimes, but they would, they would work on those games, and they would release expansions, and they would fix them. They have a long list of things that they've done incredibly well. Back in 2008, they partnered with Games Workshop, the creators of the Warhammer 40k universe, a massive and incredibly popular tabletop game. And during a time when a lot of people feel that Games Workshop may have been dropping the ball on their IP, Fantasy Flight was putting out fantastic work on, on the Warhammer universe. They were putting out some great games that are still highly revered today. They also acquired the license for the Star Wars games. Their Star Wars X-Wing game was a massive breakout hit. It was one of the first, you know, big, you know, licensed games that they released and really kind of cemented them as being able to do these sort of games. I mean, you talk about licensed games. They also published Game of Thrones games. Even before the show was coming out, they have Battlestar Galactica, easily one of the best games they've ever made. And that came out pre-Asmodee as well. And you have a lot of their Lord of the Rings games. Some of those are still around today. Some of those are incredibly popular. So like you said, they have a huge history of games that really spoke to a lot of the fan base. But they also were kind of pioneers a little bit as well. One of the things that has maintained to this day are collectible card games like Magic the Gathering. And those games are incredibly popular, remain so to this day. But one of the problems with those is that getting into those games is incredibly expensive. You want to go ahead and buy a hand of cards that is even remotely competitive to play with other people, you're going to be spending $900, potentially more, trying to get a, a deck that's even somewhat comparable. So they decided to create something they called a living card game, which is essentially, it's a card game, but you're not buying random packs, you're buying expansions for your card game. So you know what the price is going to be. And yeah, if you buy in later, it's going to go ahead and be a little bit more expensive, but you know exactly what the cost is. There's no crazy cost because the cards are hard to find. And so there's a clear evidence here that they're a company that not only sees the trends in gaming and cares about them, but they also try to evolve past the issues within board gaming, and they try to improve upon the things that they saw. Back in 2014, they were purchased by Asmodee. I think one of the reasons we're talking about them now is because we see a lot of issues that have come up in the last two to three years. The reason for this is really that for the first couple years of their purchase by Asmodee, they were kind of left alone. There wasn't a whole lot going on. Back in 2016, Christian Peterson left the company that he founded. I'm sure that he was working to smooth over the transition. But then after he leaves, I, I think 
you saw the company kind of lose a lot of its leadership. And that's something, like I said, we will come back to because Christian Peterson really was the soul of the company in many ways for good and for ill. But you do see differences in the way that the studio was handled after this. You see them supporting games less. You see them dropping a lot of their older titles and no longer providing those. They're not printing a lot of those anymore. They really began focusing on specific games. And of course, in the last couple of years, there have been some very high profile people leaving, some of the people who have been there for decades, and a lot of layoffs. And you really see, like you said, Asmodee is paring down this company, as well as they're actually moving a lot of the games away from Fantasy Flight. You have their tabletop RPGs, you have a lot of their miniature games. Those are being outsourced to other companies outside of Fantasy Flight themselves. So Fantasy Flight, as we know it, is going through some major changes. They are a vastly different company than they were back in 1997. So I guess the real question here is, what happened? Like, what exactly did happen here? Because it's easy to look to Asmodee and say they were the problem. They purchased this company, they changed things, this is what happened. But is it that simple? Like, is that really all there is to look at it? What are you guys' thoughts on this? You know, obviously, like I said, they they were, like, like you were saying, they were very early to a lot of trends. I mean, they invented the living card game. They they took this idea of magic that had become so wildly popular and adapted that into a format where you could just sell one box and get all the cards, but still get that experience. But I think, not to denigrate anybody's character, it's hard to have the main creative also be in charge of everything. Um, I not not to to say anything ill of of Christian Peterson. I'm sure he's a wonderful gentleman. I've I've never met the guy, but there's a reason why in a lot of companies that are set up more from the beginning, you have the department that comes up with cool ideas, and then you have the department that like does human resources and manages the day to day because having the one person who came up with the really good idea, and not to take away, again, Twilight Imperium, there's no way that game could come out today. It's such a crazy idea that would have been Kickstarter a thousand percent. There's no way that game could just be released and just be on sale. But to have the idea guy also be the guy who makes all of the day-to-day decisions is really going to kind of put a drag on both of those things. You know, I, it's 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 understandable the company was kind of his baby. Their whole opening gambit was his thing that he came up with. But I, I think even if Asmodee hadn't bought them, I'd be willing to bet that he probably would have stepped down eventually, stayed with the company for sure, but let somebody else really be in charge. That's a really good point, and I think it speaks to a lot of the problems that the company may have had. There's a fantastic documentary by Shut Up and Sit Down where they detail the production of the fourth edition of Twilight Imperium. And it's a fantastic video. It's not that long. You should definitely check it out if you're interested in getting a behind-the-scenes look at how developers produce board games, kind of the process they go through. But one of the consistent things you see is Peterson coming up with these really off-the-wall ideas, kind of throwing stuff out there. And it's hard to say no to the guy when he's a creator and CEO of the company. And so you end up with situations where he's like, oh, what if we make the box 
massive. People are like, well, Peterson, we can't fit this box through a door. And, you know, you have to you have to kind of hold him back, but sometimes it's tough. And so you do see this this kind of difficulty there. There's a fantastic thread on Reddit where people have actually been talking about a, a similar thing. And I want to shout out the user V. Liam, who linked a couple of glass door views, actually, of workers, um, some ex-employees that were talking about the company. And one of the consistent things you see in a lot of these reviews is just the attitude of working there could be very, very toxic. Christian himself, I mean, you know, when you're the creator and you're kind of the superstar, you come up with all these things. And he is, people say that he often, you know, was very rude to his employees. There was just a very toxic environment, very similar to a lot of these video game companies where it's it's a very bro atmosphere. And you have kind of a very negative work environment if you're not one of the in people. And if you're not willing to throw everything you have in, if you're not passionate about it enough, where you're going to devote your free time, then you can end up feeling used. And so I think you do see a lot of the issues where the things that made them good, the way that they loved the the gamings, the games itself, in some ways worked against them as well. I was really kind of bummed to hear some of this about Christian Peterson and these Glassdoor reviews and some of the, the comments about him because I had never really delved into that side of, of the company. And it, it I don't find it shocking. I think, you know, you see that a lot in companies that are run by kind of these mad genius creative types that they can be places that aren't necessarily the most healthy in terms of working environment and structure. But so I was a little bit bummed to hear that. And, and, and I don't want to defend that any kind of toxicity at all. But I will say just from the outside looking in as a fan, the thing that I loved about Fantasy Flight over the many years that I've been enjoying their games is they really felt like a company that understood what people that love genre fiction love about that stuff. You know, if you like horror and creepiness, they really got that in their Arkham games. And if you love the feel of epic space opera, they captured that in Twilight Imperium. They captured it probably better than almost anybody else ever has. And if you loved fantasy and you loved all that wizards and goblins and magic and stuff the way I am officially on the record as loving it, then you love their game set and their Tyranoth world. The uh, Tyranoth games, which consist of their Descent Dungeon Crawler, the Runebound Fantasy Adventure Board game, which got up to three editions, which is a big achievement that a lot of people don't think about. They also had a uh, Battle Lore, a uh, tabletop miniatures war type game. They had the Rune Wars miniature game set in the same world, and, and many more. They had a diverse line of titles all set in this world. And the Tyranoth world is kind of famously generic, and nobody really could tell you anything about the lore of the place other than the most hardcore fans. It's basically like everybody took, you took Middle Earth and Azeroth and like uh, Narnia and Shannara and every fantasy world that's ever been and you put it in a bag and shook it up and out pop, out would pop Tyranoth. Here it is. It's all the things you love. But here's the secret thing that nobody ever says. That's why it was kind of great. It was super generic because you didn't need to like have any background to understand it. If you've read all that stuff, if you've watched all those fantasy movies and you sat down in front of Roombound, you're like, oh, I know. I know exactly what's happening here, folks. And it felt so good. They understood the tone, they understood the feel, and they built good game mechanics around those settings. I want to, I'm talking about the Tyranoff setting in particular because I want to pause for a moment and dig into some comments that I got from some fans on Facebook. Just to kind of prove the point here, we're not the only ones who seem kind of bummed 
about Fantasy Flight's uh, arc in the last few years, I went on a couple of different Facebook groups, uh, and I want to shout them out, because these are great places if you love these games. Uh, there's the Heroes of Tyranoth, a Descent Journeys in the Dark fan group on Facebook. There's also the Descent into Darkness 2nd Edition group. And uh, a much smaller group, but one that I still think is a really good place, is the Runebound board game group. And I hopped into all three of these uh, groups and I asked all the same question. Basically, hey, what do you guys think about what's been going on with Fantasy Flight game over the last few years? And I think these the, the, the folks who love these Tyranoth set games probably feel the most burned because they've gone the most scorched earth on this line. They've essentially abandoned almost every game that they've published. No more expansions. They've cut off support for them and they're going in a totally new direction that a lot of people really don't like. I'm going to read a few select comments from here, or just a few highlights. Uh, here's uh, Alex in uh, the Descent into Darkness 2nd Edition group. It's simple. Asmode bought them, used them to challenge Hasbro, and wipe out all non-profitable projects, so creators left. And all the great creators and vendors all left, so this is no more than a tentacle from the Asmode pod. Here's uh, John he says, it's a poor move for them to have limited the reprints of Descent 2nd Edition and basically stopped printing most of the uh, packs, lieutenants, etc. during this time period. It's driven the secondary market value in inflated prices on eBay, and they're leaving a significant amount of money on the table. And this is, I think, a really interesting one, too. Uh, they missed the boat, says Charles, with the whole Tiranoff family. They made too many assumptions that people liked the games like Runebound and Ascent because of their setting rather than understanding that people like these games. And I think he goes on to say that like these were good game systems that they've basically abandoned. So, you know, the the, the sense of disappointment is is really out there. And I really feel that in a lot of these fans, you know, because people have gotten highly invested in these lines of games. If you're a real serious Descent player, you could have spent hundreds of dollars over the last few years on miniatures and components. And none of that's going to be compatible with this new Descent game that they are, are launching out. I guess to kind of put a cap on my feelings about Fantasy Flight games right now, if I put my NBA hat on, my pure like business hat on, uh, Asmodee has probably made them a, a healthier and more reasonably profitable company. They've trimmed the fat. They've stopped releasing expansions for games that had small but devoted audiences. They've got rid of almost all the legacy uh, games that were great to keep alive, but that people probably weren't buying in droves. They've done the things that you would do if you wanted to make them profitable, healthy, but they're just not exciting anymore. They're just not ambitious. They're just not putting out games that make people who play games excited and jazzed. And that's a real, real shame. And that, to me, is the greatest kind of moral of this story here, is that as companies get big and they get purchased their soul gets lost a little bit. And I think that means that for us as people who play games, less adventurous, less thematic, less exciting games are uh, actually hitting the marketplace. And that's the real bummer here. It's a very different world that we live in now. And they are a very, very different company now. And I mean, you're right. Like they might be better off financially than they used to be. And the games that they do to publish are, are not bad games. Some of them are very popular. Some of them are pretty high on the hotness list. But in terms of what the company is willing to do is definitely a lot less than it used to. But I feel like there's a balance to be struck there. And I think I think you alluded to this earlier, uh, Aaron. But like the idea is like, would Fantasy Flight games have been able to thrive and continue 
were they not bought by Asmodee, if they continued the way that they ran their business, if they tried to move forward and not change anything, in today's environment with the changing popularity of board games with how difficult it is to have your games found, even for a company that large and that popular, would they have been able to continue? Would they still be able to manage if they had not tried to adapt and go this route? Yeah, I mean, the point I feel bears being made that they have never done a Kickstarter. And that is something that even some of the real big heavy hitters, if they have an idea that they're like, oh, this is going to be kind of expensive or we're not 100% sure about this one. I mean, Gamelin, Simon, like every game they do just about is on Kickstarter. And again, we, that, that's a whole other episode just about the rationale behind that. But the fact that they were consistently like, we're just gonna, we're just gonna make it. We're gonna commit full-throated behind our ideas. And we're just gonna go ahead get that, you know, MOQ that we need to get this idea out into the world and trust that people will see the little two-sided F logo in the corner and say, oh, this is a Fantasy Flight game. Let's pick it up and try it out because so far their track record's pretty good. So that is, I think, something kind of to be lauded about them. And I mean, the fact that they were around for almost two decades before Asmodee bought them Yes, the the marketplace has absolutely changed since 1997 for board games. I mean, uh, in the the TI4 documentary, uh, Christian Peterson talks about how they were at Origins showing off and selling the first edition of Twilight Imperium, and there was another guy there who was showing off and selling the first American print of Catan. You know, so like... Board games in general really hadn't hit, or at least board games the way that that we think of them now. That these modern designer games. I mean, even you know they were they were often popping in Europe, but they hadn't really hit our shores quite yet. And the fact that they they got started on on this craziness back then is is really impressive. I think they would still be around. They might not have had such a cool and blinged out version of TI4. Uh, there might not even have been a TI4. You know, things may have been a little bit tighter, but I think they would still be publishing, you know, imprints or just updated versions of old games that you couldn't get anywhere else because, like you were saying earlier, they just like the games. They they weren't... Obviously, they're a business. They're in it to turn some kind of a profit. But you didn't get the impression that they were necessarily so much in it for the money as they were, we have cool ideas, and we want to share those cool ideas with you more than we just want to extract the maximum amount of profit that we can out of every decision that we make. Yeah, that's that's the thing about them that I feel like is most lost right now is, you know, they were willing to put out expansions in a timely fashion to games that I know weren't selling that well. I mean, they were one of the first companies to do expansions at all. Most most companies put out a game, and that was it. That was what you got. And they were the first, one of the first companies to be like, oh, you really love this game. Well, here's some more of that game. And what a crazy idea that was when they first did it. 
Oh yeah, I mean, you know, games that did that were very popular, like Descent, but even some of their smaller titles in these different lines would get several boxes of expansions over the years. So if a game found a fan base, those fans would feel supported. And that's how you build loyalty. I do think that Fantasy Flight, if they hadn't been purchased by Asmodee, would still be around. I think they may have had to pare back their product line in some of the same ways over time. Uh, they may have been susceptible to a, a major flop, and that could have hurt them more without the corporate backing of Asmodee. Uh, I also think at some point they would have bit the bullet and done a Kickstarter. I think more than anything, I think that's kept them out of the current like buzz and hype cycle. Because, you know, the life cycle of a game now, the way it gets awareness, the way it hits the hotness list, all of that comes from Kickstarter. So when Fantasy Flight drops a new game, unless it's an IP that just immediately connects and people are excited about it, it's not necessarily guaranteed that it's going to make waves or that people are going to stay aware of it and interested in it for like the long haul. I mean, they just dropped this new X-Men game that nobody's talking about, and I don't even know if it's really even all that good, but it wasn't kickstarted, and it's not on the hotness list, and who even cares? And so that's the kind of stuff that I think is going to hurt them uh, over time. Um, I do sort of like, I love and hate, not love and hate, I, I have respect and concern about the fact that they have never used Kickstarter. I think their commitment to a retail-driven model means that their games are reaching a wider audience than just those people who can afford to back games and back them at high levels. And that's a really good thing, but it has probably held them back in some ways. Final thing, I know we're getting kind of probably to the end of our time here, but I do want to ask about this next Descent game. This feels like they're Hail Mary in a way a big box dungeon crawl game that is clearly designed to compete head-to-head with Gloomhaven, clearly designed uh, to compete head-to-head with some of the things coming out of Simon in terms of the quality of the miniatures and the components. And this is meant to be the greatest dungeon crawl of all time. And I don't hear a lot of people out there in- excited about this game at all. In fact, most of the people on these Tiranoth uh, fan groups that I were talking with are very skeptical about it. This is a game that's projected to retail at well over $100 to require an app to play it and to have less miniatures and components than the original Descent did when it launched. What do you guys think about this new Descent? I mean, it seems very risky to me. I think this may tie into a lot of what we were talking about, their structural issues as a company. They have never done a good job of playtesting. It was one of the reasons that they did focus on expansion so much is because it was a running joke that, oh, well, the game's broken, just wait a couple months for them to put out an expansion that fixes it. Because that was one of the biggest things that they did with their expansions consistently was make sure that their game that had issues, they would repair. And while that is admirable, the fact is that a lot of these games were not playtested as well as they should have been. And, you know, moving forward, hopefully that's one of those things that a more corporate environment like Asmodee will help fix is more focus on those things. Maybe this game has been done more, hopefully, despite there being layoffs. Hopefully, maybe the company structure and the way that people are treated is getting better, hopefully, and that may lead to better games. But in general, I mean, I think Fantasy Flight may have lost already a lot of sort of the buzz around their name and coming out with this new game, a game that that's, that is so huge, is so expensive, that's not Twilight Imperium, doesn't have quite the same draw. I'm worried that it may, like you said, just be a big flop, especially if it shows up and it does not get the great reviews that it needs. If it is not perfected the way it needs to be, this could very well be like the last real new thing we see from them that is not, you know, outside of their existing properties. Aaron, what do you think about that game from what you've seen of it so far? I mean, it definitely kind of feels like a response to this this new market where we've got games like Gloomhaven, Kingdom Death Monster, 
Uh, I know there's there's a couple other like these epic games where that has this giant campaign, and it is expected that you know you're going to sink a paycheck into this one game, but it is going to be the game that you and your friends play. Just you guys talking about it, I decided to look it back up again. I mean, the the retail is $175, which is, that's a, that's a bold move. That's an incredibly bold move. I mean, for a dungeon crawl, which is, there's a, so many options in that space. And yes, this game has beautiful miniatures. It has wild things like 3D terrain and multi-tiered levels. But is that really what we're wanting? I mean, when gambling games can make $2 million off of the most bog-standard dungeon crawl I've ever seen. Just a box of tiles and some miniatures. They're not even tiles, they're cards. They're just little cards. They're not even tiles. Yeah, you know, I'm not even sure, like, what battle that Fantasy Flight's trying to win here. They had so many good existing games set in this world that they could have just expanded upon, you know, and released systems that actually used some of the expansions and miniatures that fans already had. I just, I don't know. It feels like they're making a wild decision here that I'm not sure is going to pay off. Nobody would be more excited for this game to be a huge hit because it feels like maybe it would relaunch this line of games that I love so much, these tearing off the set games. But uh, I'm just, I'm highly skeptical. And, you know, to kind of cap off the story, I think it just shows that uh, we're dealing with a very different landscape in board gaming. Uh, as the hobby's grown, as it's gotten bigger and more profitable, we're going to see bigger companies making more profit-driven choices. And so that Wild West, that 20-year period of experimentation and wild design decisions that gave us so many great games, you know, I do think we run the risk of that becoming uh, increasingly rare as companies consolidate and try to protect that bottom line. So, you know, this could be, you know, one of the early moments of like, will the golden age of games ever end and it's like well when everything consolidates around to like a big three that's putting out <laughs> very safe and profitable games we'll know the golden age is truly behind us so that's our discussion on fantasy flight games where they've been what they're up to what we can look forward to definitely sad to see such a giant of board gaming change in such a way but hopefully we can see them kind of recover some of their former glory really want to thank Aaron again for coming back on the podcast. Aaron, you have been on simultaneously our most popular episode yet, and also the least popular episode yet. What do you think that bears for your future on this podcast? I mean, really, I guess after, you know, in, 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 in a couple of weeks after this one's been out for a little while, we'll find out if I ever get to come back, see if it was lightning in a bottle the first time, or if, if people just really don't like me being here. I'm thinking we might not be changing the locks on that room that you call a brig. So we'll see. You may just be locked in there forever. But we want to thank everybody for listening. Once again, thank you so much. We are doing our giveaway. Just a reminder again, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out. And you're going to have a chance to go ahead and win Bluffineers, a fantastic party game that we really enjoy. So do that. It really does help us out. But we'd also love to hear from you. We'd love to get to interact with you. Go ahead and reach out to us. Matt, where can people get in touch with us if they would like to? You can find us on uh, the social media world. Uh, look, look for us on Instagram, at Dice Pirates, or on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, we uh, post regularly throughout the week, uh, mini-reviews, updates on what we're playing. I post 
humorous gifts and uh, things to the Instagram story. So uh, follow along with us and join us there. And above all, interact with us. Send us a message, comment. We'll talk to you and interact with you in real life. We hope to hear from you. It's been fantastic getting to talk about this. And we're going to go ahead and see you next time here on The Dice Pirates. See ya. All right, hello, and welcome to the Dice Pirates. Uh, I can't do the intro because I never do it. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> it's so, it's so strange. What 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 episode number is this? Uh, this is episode twelve. I got it all in the outline for you. Episode twelve. We're going to talk about what happened to Fantasy Flight Games. So yeah, try all right, here we go. Let me let me let me get in the groove. That's hilarious. <laughs> that completely that completely flummoxed me. I knew I'm, this was gonna. I knew this was gonna throw you. I knew that was gonna happen. Yeah. Uh, hello and welcome back to the Dice Pirates. Uh, this is episode thirteen, where we're gonna be doing a a look episode, at uh, episode twelve. Episode twelve. Oh, episode twelve. Oh, it's episode thirteen because of the trailer. <laughs> you had one job. One job. <laughs>